Hi there, Rick Madison, Rick and Friends. And uh, today we have a fellow that's that's coming from the coast. Many of you have watched his work, which is, uh, I saw it the other night. It is profound. Um, we're going to dive into some of the things that have led up to uh, the, the documentary, which is part of a series. Uh, Vancouver is dying and we're sitting with us is Aaron Gunn. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to uh, be in Kelowna. What do you think of Kelowna? You, you flew in yesterday, or I, I drove in yesterday, okay. and uh, so we haven't seen a lot of the city. But I've, I've, uh, I mean, I'm from coastal BC, so I've been here before, and it's a beautiful city. Uh, although it's probably probably more of a summer summer stop for me than uh, in the winter. Yeah, it's not as hospitable in the winter. Yeah. That's for sure. Now. Um, Obviously, what do we what do we call you? A documentarian or a filmmaker? Like, how would you how would you prefer going forward? Is it just a man who wears many hats? Or yeah, it certainly seems that way. I uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think you know I I have a large social media following. Um, we make films, we make documentaries, and we we comment and and provide social commentary on the big. Uh, political issues uh, of the day. So that's that's what I'm concerned with doing. It's hard to fit that onto a business card, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think especially with some of the more recent work that I've been doing, it's getting closer and closer to kind of full-length documentaries. So uh, moving in that in that filmmaker direction. So what was the goal when you when you first embarked on this? Because you know you're dealing with social issues. It's not exactly a commercialized venture. Let's put it that way. Like there's, is, is there money in this? Well, we crowdfund all of the money. So to take a, to take a step back, um, I really started off and built my following making, sharing political content and creating short videos, almost like a video op-ed. So like an op-ed you might see, might've seen in the newspaper 10, 20 years ago, uh, condensing those into two, three minute videos uh, over Facebook and, and other online platforms. But have since moved in, to really uh, documentary filmmaking. Uh, started with a this series that we launched called Politics Explained, and for that we crowdfunded all of the money. So uh, money over top, uh, over the internet to get supporters that ship in 25 bucks, 100 bucks, a couple hundred bucks, and um, went and produced uh, six episodes. And I didn't know if anyone was gonna actually sit down and watch 20 minutes or 25 minutes of, uh, of uh, some investigative journalism that we did on an issue that we always stick to Canadian issues because I think they're underserved. I get I get asked all the time, like, can you cover this? Can you cover that? That are, you know, global in significance. If it's if it's got global ramifications, there's there's always people in the United States with budgets a hundred times bigger than mine that are covering it. But here in Canada, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of perspectives that are being completely ignored by the mainstream media, or in my opinion, uh, warped. And uh, it provides an opportunity for us to go and tell those stories. So since then, we've produced 19 episodes on, on 19 different topics. And, um, and uh, we're actually getting ready to launch, uh, depending on when this podcast airs, we'll be uh, launching a season four, announcing a season four and six new episodes that we're going to be uh, filming uh, throughout the spring and launching uh, later this year. So that's pretty exciting that the fact that you've been able to uh, produce as many as you have because it's a lot of work there's a lot of shooting there's a lot of back-end production work and that kind of thing do you have a job uh 
I, this is the job. This is definitely the job. I, I can tell you, I can feel it right now. Uh, we've been out uh, filming for the past seven days in Alberta. Um, and those are uh, up at seven and in bed uh, by one and not much uh, rest in between. So uh, during the production stage, it's always very uh, exhausting and stressful also because the budgets are, are really tight for these. It's not a super lucrative uh, career path. And um, when you're on the road, you're filming and you've got your film guys, uh, you've got a certain, you're carrying a certain amount of cost per day. So you really are cramming in as many interviews as you can. And when we do each season, one way we can keep costs low is by filming episodes concurrently. So we film all six episodes at the same time, which can also create a little bit of mental uh, whiplash for, for me because you're going from an interview on, mm-hmm. on uh, say, Bill C-11 and free speech to to uh, the opioid epidemic and then to uh, oil and gas uh, development. And it's, it's, uh, but it's, it all uh, seems to work out in the end. Because I think I I read somewhere that you produced Vancouver is dying for fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. That's now it would, be, it would be kind of like the season and then divided by six kind of a thing because we're we're filming it concurrently. To be honest, Vancouver is dying might have been a bit less because there was less travel involved, which is obviously a big big expense. But the fact that almost all of the interviews for that episode came from Vancouver, which is in my own backyard, it. Uh, it was actually one of the more uh, one of the easier episodes to film. Don't uh, say that, Aaron. Don't I should say, say that. Yeah, though some of the ones, uh, the the pipeline ones, were up in northern BC, like in the middle of nowhere, um, interviewing First Nations on on reserves. Like uh, it can be quite uh, quite exhausting. So when you set out to do this, which was uh, how many views has the Vancouver is dying got so far? It's got uh, just over three million on uh, Facebook and YouTube uh, combined. So that's phenomenal. Now, in and when you sat down to do that, did you foresee those kind of numbers? Uh, no. I usually have a pretty broad... Uh, you, you'd think after... Um, I'll, I'll give you a little funny story, actually. Everyone that works on the projects, like the camera guys and, and the, uh, the editors and things like that, the editor, uh, some of the producers, we have a little pool at the end of every season where we all put in 40 bucks. And we rank order how we think all the episodes are going to perform over mm-hmm. social media in their first month kind of uh, online. And uh, whoever rank orders them the best, there's kind of a point system, uh, wins the pot of money. And I've lost every single season. So you'd think after we've done over 300, including the short videos, over 300 of them might have a better uh, instinct of what's actually going to perform. But no, Vancouver's dying. You On one hand, I thought that Obviously, it was well-produced. We obviously put a lot of effort into it. It was kind of considered the flagship episode of that season. On the other hand, at 55 minutes, it was almost double the length of anything I had produced before. So I also thought there was a possibility it was going to completely bomb. So um, we just never know. You put it out there and you see what happens. And it was actually slow to take off. It took a couple days. And then it just started really gaining traction and then, of course, just kind of exploded uh, uh, across the across the internet. I found your timing to be really spot on because obviously we're going to municipal elections in Vancouver. Um, Stuart Kennedy was, uh, you know, a target of the documentary, and and did it? Were you mindful of that? Did you think, okay, this is two weeks out from the election, I'm going to drop it now? 
Uh, a little bit, yes and no. Uh, the, the video was late. It was supposed to come out in July. The whole season was was um, was took us longer to produce than we were expecting, which it usually happens. And uh, so it was originally supposed to come out in like mid to late July. So it was going to come out before the election, but not uh, as tight to it as it ended up uh, ended up being. It it uh, did factor into our decision making. Again, the big thing for us is just we want the video to perform well. And for as many people to see it as possible, I'm sure, no different than when a you know a Hollywood distribution or production company is is considering the timing whether they're going to put out their their blockbuster and before award season or in the summer or whatever the case may be. And uh, so we obviously knew talking about an issue that was that was that was very hot in the city of Vancouver uh, and municipal elections more broadly in British Columbia that we'd put it out um, before the municipal elections took place. And obviously, as you, all cities were voting at the same time. And uh, so, yeah, we just try to try to aim for, for relevance. Well, I think the relevance really increases two weeks out before an election. I mean, a lot of people start diving into the issues and going, okay, who am I going to vote for? And they start gathering their intel on their candidates. And that's part of the reason why I thought that documentary was so well-timed, because that's exactly when people wake up and go, I know nothing of these candidates, I need to dive in. So your your documentary, I, I think, really hit the mark when it came to that timing. Yeah, and they, uh, <laughs> I know the marriage team uh, wasn't too thrilled about uh, <laughs> about the timing of, of the release. But yeah, that was our that was our big goal was to 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 make the documentary have the biggest impact uh, that it could possibly have, and it, I think we obviously succeeded in in that regard. But it it certainly certainly exceeded any of my expectations by a significant margin. And like I said, I set pretty broad expectations. But you know, I had been I had built a pretty big following on on Facebook, but YouTube I just started out like I only had a couple thousand subscribers. You know, the biggest video I had at that time maybe had like 30,000 views. Mm -hmm. And then this thing just exploded and was getting at one point, you know, 50,000 views a day. And uh, so that, um, yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. This is a bit of a loaded question, but I love asking him. Uh, Do you think Stuart Kennedy would still be in office if that documentary hadn't come to life? I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you had uh, to bet, I would say probably, but he would have he would have lost by a lot less, I think. I mean, he lost by twenty points, twenty percent. I mean, he got crushed. I think that he he likely would have lost by significantly less if it wasn't for the documentary. But um, I think the the documentary obviously hurt his support level, and then also consolidated support around the eventual uh, mayoral winner, just because. You know, people that were already predisposed to not to not support the mayor were like, okay, this is this is out of control. We need to who's got the best chance of beating him? I'll just vote for whoever that is. So, I think there was uh, definitely had some consequences in that regard. Did you get any um, friction or or any? Was there any contact made with uh, Pivot Legal Society? Like, did they? contact you at all or or was there any kind of communication with pivot because obviously they are advocates for homelessness and they're you know they they mire a lot of communities in legal battles because they say if you move this tent city or you touch these people we will come down on you with endless amounts of uh, suits and that sort of thing did was there any did your paths cross at all uh no no i mean i don't usually 
um, I mean, we're, we're also filming. Uh, I mean, if I don't if I don't reach, uh, I, I mean, I didn't reach out. Basically, the paths cross with the people that I reach out to do uh, interviews with, um, or vice versa. So there's been no uh, there's been no contact in in that regard or anything like that. I mean, to be honest, like I know they wouldn't have agreed to an inter- interview. Some people ask me sometimes, like, why don't you? Uh, why don't you interview more people on the other side? And I said, well, I'm not going to waste my time sending an email. Like, I think, like, Kennedy Stewart's not going to accept uh, my re- request for an interview. Like, I already know that. <laughs> I mean, I could do the whole kind of fake request and then not get a response. And then in the video, say, uh, you know, we reached out and to the mayor's office and to no response. But, like, it's it's um, it's a bit of showmanship and, and things like that. So um, I'm just digging. Uh, I, I try to make the videos as informative as possible and and uh showmanship uh kind of comes secondary it's interesting because i i produced a small documentary about canada energy and how it can help pay for the deficit and uh i was surprised at how because again there's that criticism where you didn't put enough of a balanced take on it but you'd be surprised at how many people turn down interview requests because they simply do want to speak on on the issue because it, it can be volatile. And that's the part that I'm always surprised at is when people are critical of your work, why didn't you get more people from policymakers or something like that? But the problem is, is they usually defer. They do not, they do not even answer the email or the phone call or there's gatekeepers and that kind of thing. Did you run up against that quite a bit then? I mean, this is, this is, uh, Vancouver's dying was in the third season, so I've kind of learned already that that's how it works. I mean, it's especially in a documentary format where uh, most policy. I mean, it's not even. By the way, the the uh, to the extent that I do talk to people, it's usually like protesters. It's usually because I go to the event and just start putting mics in people's faces, which I don't really like doing, and they're kind of openly share. Usually they don't know who I am, or in, in that case, but but most like any of the professional activists, any of the professional politicians, uh, you know they don't want to. I mean, for the most part, they don't want to debate their views. They don't want to have their views challenged. I think that's very specific, also to the particular point in time we are right now in Canada, with who I would call the left more broadly, is they specifically don't want their views challenged, and they're used to to a a media landscape where a lot of these views aren't challenged at all. So um, the last thing they want to do is be, be put on the spot about them. Um, I'd be happy. I'd, like, I, I wish we were in an alternate world where there was uh, lots of these kind of debate shows. And, you know, in the United States, there's, for example, a Bill Maher uh, show on HBO where he's got people on from both sides and they kind of hash things out. We don't really have things like that in Canada, um, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, it takes two to tango there. I, I can't uh, force these people to have these conversations with me. I mean, I don't think I've ever been... I've never been invited by any of uh, left-leaning podcasts or anything like that, and I would be uh, I'd be happy to go on, but um, yeah, I don't. They're just not interested in having those those conversations. And I, and I will say, in their defense, for documentary production, you know, it's also different than a podcast because you know what you're saying is going to be cut up. So if you don't have control of the post-production process, and you think that you have a, um, you know a, a policy difference with whoever's making the documentary you might be reluctant to to give an interview 
I mean, usually in the United States, I haven't watched some of the, the latest ones, but I mean, usually they're either interviewing people like if it's Michael Moore or it's, or the Daily Wire does, does theirs. Uh, usually they're interviewing people who they agree with or they're interviewing people who clearly don't know who's interviewing them, I think, and don't under, don't know that the project is. And I also and I also really like, this is just not my like I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to trick anybody into a into an interview or, or anything like that or take people out of context. So I just prefer to, to try to seek the truth, to talk to the people who I think have a lot of insight and and try to break down an issue as I see it and people are people are free to take it or leave it or what I always say is view, watch the documentaries and then go watch other people's works too and then and then uh, come to your own, your own conclusion. Well, I think that's the biggest thing is have, offering more perspectives around the table. Isn't it great though that we live in a world where we can crowdsource and so we're not tethered to uh, say a benefactor who's giving the money and you have to write a certain narrative. Like crowdsourcing allows you the freedom to create whatever you feel needs the story to be told. And I think that's the interesting part is as a, as someone who's clearly, this is stuff you, you didn't dream of getting rich by, but you were compelled to do the story. And I think that's where real journalism takes place. Yeah. And I always try to do a kind of almost like a lawyer that does pro bono work. When we choose the six episodes, we usually pick four that we think, um, because you do have to, as you, as you, as you kind of alluded to, you have to crowdfund for the episodes. Um, but there's always one or two episodes I do that I know, uh, might not be, uh, sources for, uh, or, or effective sources for, for getting donations, getting contributions, getting people to, to help produce or sponsor it, but that I think is an important story to be told. So I, sometimes you can, you can almost infer what those episodes are each season. And uh, so I think it's important to, as, as you said, pick episodes that just are topics and issues that aren't being talked about, but that are important to Canada and our democracy. And there's just so many, there's so many things that aren't being said on so many issues. So, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're only um, in a democracy that, that votes and decides the direction of the country. You're, you're only as strong as you, as uh, informed your as your citizen, as your citizenry is. So do you think the, the media is now at the, at that point where there's so much money being transferred from the government to the media that we're really not seeing those stories anymore, that discovery journalism, where they're digging deep into these issues and, and really bearing the brunt of that responsibility. Like it's coming down to, um, and again, I'm just speaking in broad terms, but that it, it's falling on the on the shoulders of, of people like yourself who are trying to tell that story because there's less and less media coverage because I, I and I don't know the reason why but it, does it feel like that to you? Yeah, I think a couple of things probably happened. I mean, I think the the, the, the first thing that people have to understand is the business model of, of the media, of the traditional media, which has been in place for decades, has completely fallen out from underneath them. So two things happen. One, they've become completely dependent on government funding. And then two, um, even with that dependency, they also had to significantly uh, cut back on staff and, and journalists and, and, and you know newsrooms have been empty. So I think just because those newsrooms have been are much thinner than they used to be, that significantly limits their ability to um, conduct 
uh, you know, what's traditionally been known as investigative journalism, and 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 it's it's just it's easier to kind of repackage a story, a wire story from the Canadian press, and put it out and try to get clicks that way, and try to maintain your, your you know, your advertising budgets, uh, and then also obviously the dependence on the government um, is a significant conflict of interest that that has been pointed out by by many people, not just me. Uh, and then I think on top of that, we're in a weird, weird kind of um, moment where the media has become very ideological, where I think this probably goes back to universities and journalism schools, where journalists now, especially young journalists, or I should say journalists who are working for the people who call themselves journalists working for the media, uh, seem very, I think, believe their job is to further a socio-political objective, um, uh, and I'm sure they think they're doing it for some sort of greater good, but it's gotten really far away from just reporting and seeking out facts. Uh, obviously, there's still good journalists out there, including at all the the legacy outlets, but it's just the focus is not what it what it used to be. And there's a certain ideological bent that is uh, that I don't even remember. I'm not that old, but I don't even remember it growing up. And the last like seven or eight years has just exploded, and. Um, I think that turns a lot of people off, which is an opportunity for for independents like me to build our own followings uh, from people who are just increasingly turning away from from mainstream media. It, we're going to turn the page a bit to uh, the issue at hand, which was you know, and and I've done several podcasts on homelessness in Kelowna, and part of the reason why I wanted to do that was dive into a complex issue that seems to have a lot of different stakeholders in it there's a lot of different uh you know you have the rcmp you have agencies you have charities uh, you have government and there's different levels to it and and whenever whenever somebody would come on the podcast and they'd say well it's you know it, it's really truly going to take different levels of government different stakeholders in order to even create a, a mark on this issue uh, in vancouver's dying you talked a lot about the safe supply and and what that is has done to increasing the population um is, is there a horizon in sight in in your eyes that we're going to be able to make some tremendous strides towards helping the homeless population with a different plan a different policy i think it depends on who you mean by we i think that alberta right now has a real innovative approach that's being that's being celebrated and and raising a lot of eyebrows across North America, not just Canada. And it is essentially the polar opposite of what we're doing here in British Columbia. So what I'm what I expect will happen over the years ahead is as the Alberta model develops and BC keeps doing what it's doing, you'll see the results of those two approaches uh, diverge. And um, at that point, I think voters will render their judgment on which way they, they'd like things to go. I mean, I mean, the, the, the early results are in, and I mean, British Columbia, the situation has never been, never been worse. It's never been costing taxpayers more money. We're, we're you know, piling bodies up every year, a hundred stories high. And um, Alberta, on the other hand, is investing heavily in treatment and recovery and getting people clean and building 10 brand new treatment facilities. And, um, you know, not handing out, not thinking the solution for an opioid epidemic is more opioids. Um, so I think that, that uh, we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, there's a, and here in British Columbia, there's a lot of ideology. There's an old ideology that's really pushing 
the government on this, but voters are also getting increasingly fed up. And um, I think Vancouver is dying kind of, I think a lot of people were fed up, but there was just no, there's no one that connected all the dots. And I think Vancouver is dying did that. And then you see federally Pierre Polyev talking about it more and you see the Alberta government really pushing their alternative. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that happens. But uh, it's hard to see hope on the horizon here in BC, but other provinces are, are moving forward. And by the end, as far as what Alberta is doing, Saskatchewan and Manitoba have already met and said with uh, their, their equivalents in Alberta and, and um, started moving in that direction as well. So you've spent some time with Marshall Smith, obviously. Um, now, devil's advocate, uh, BC has a milder climate than, than Alberta does. And I would say that Alberta, there's a lot of, because I'm from Alberta, there's a lot cheaper land that can be available, especially around the big centers like Vancouver and Victoria, where real estate has gone through the roof. So they're able to create these these uh, treatment centers a lot more easily. Is that, and, and, and again, I, I'm a big fan of Marshall Smith, is that applicable to BC or would we have to uh, bend the model or, or make the model more fluid in order for it to work here? I don't think so because I think that, uh, well, I mean, land, I mean, there's still lots of land in BC, maybe not in, in Vancouver, but there's uh, other places you could build the f these facilities. I just toured a treatment facility that there is about to open in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, now, I mean, there's... And the other thing I think that's important as far as resourcing these centers, uh, it, there is an upfront cost to obviously build them. It's not dramatic, but there is an upfront cost. But the amount of money, taxpayers' resources you'll save and human life you'll save in the long term, I think will greatly exceed it. Like if you can, if you can think about, well, I mean, there's been reports that come out which how much the downtown east side costs taxpayers every single year in welfare benefits and subsidized housing and costs associated with the criminal justice system with ambulances that cost, you know, $800 a trip or whatever, uh, hospital stays. Um, and of course, everyone down there, no one's paying taxes. If you can turn, uh, you know, some of these individuals and get them help and get them clean and return them as taxpaying members of society, uh, once again, the the ROI, the return on investment for, for taxpayers and and for society, I think would be tremendous. So I think that I, I look at it as an investment, not not so much an expense. And uh, it, the, the billions of dollars that get sucked into that, to, to dealing with this problem already, uh, to put, put the human suffering and the human toll aside, I think um, justifies it uh, to begin with. I mean, there are uh, I mean, there's there's larger issues with our healthcare system as well, which which tie uh, which ties into this, and and BC is kind of I think particularly bad. But uh, yeah, I don't think I think if Alberta can do it, so can BC. Is there any thoughts about going to Portugal and and doing a bit of a documentary on the Portugal model and and seeing because I know that that model has been touted as part of the Marshall Smith plan of you know dissuasion uh, towards criminality and, and more towards treatment. And I think that model seems to keep getting brought up in different podcasts I've done, one with Renee Merrifield, the MLA. Is that something that, that's in your future, is is possibly doing some coverage, you know, from a BC perspective on Portugal and being able to do that? I mean, I'd throw 40 bucks into the pot. I really would. Yeah, we thought about uh, going to Portugal. It might still happen one day. The thing is, is that 
the Alberta model that's happening right now is is heavily inspired by Portugal with with some modifications for the given the different set of circumstances. I mean, Portugal never had it nearly as bad as, as we do here in in Canada or North America. But uh, what's happening in Alberta is basically the Portugal model in real time being implemented. So I know this uh, in this next season of Politics Explained, we actually have a sequel to Vancouver's Dying, which we've just begun production work on. That's where I'm just coming from. And uh, so we'll be talking about uh, Portugal a lot, talking about Switzerland a lot, who's got some, who's got some interesting um, experience with, with so-called safe supply and uh, and presenting these issues to Canadians. But the interesting thing is it's not so much hypothetical or, or, you know, going to Europe because they're actually implementing it as we speak in Alberta, the province next door. So you're not, I think, going to have a better contrast than two provinces uh, right next to each other. Uh, they do have some different... Uh, they do are they're in slightly different situations, but this isn't like a European country that's dramatically different, different history, different culture. I mean, it's, it's two Canadian jurisdictions, two Western Canadian jurisdictions, with uh, similar problems around opioid addiction and and uh, and uh, things like that. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting. But of course, Portugal, Portugal. The other thing about Portugal is it gets taken out of context a lot of times because it's actually used by people pushing, for example, decriminalization in BC. And mm-hmm. they'll say, look, oh, Portugal de- decriminalized drugs with, while missing the much bigger picture of why they decriminalized drugs and the context with which they did it. And also implying that when Portugal decriminalized, they removed all pen- penalties and stigma and um, consequences for drug use. And it was kind of open season, which of course is not what it's like. There's there's no open drug use. If you use drugs openly in in Portugal, like you see in every major city in British Columbia, uh, you get picked up in police in, f- in 15 minutes. Um, you know, if you get if you if you got caught doing that multiple times, you get hauled in front of a judge or called dissuasion commissions, commissions mm-hmm. that give you uh, tickets and and uh, send you referrals to treatment and all these different kinds of things. And there's also much more societal stigma in Portugal, which is a more kind of socially conservative country uh, in that regard than than we are here. So. Uh, there's a lots of different. It's a much different environment, and they're not hauling people off to jail, uh, but either are we. So, and we haven't been doing that for a long time. So it's it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre notion to to for for those who are pushing the policies in British Columbia to be, to be um, highlighting what's happening in some of these European countries. So it seems to me like you've really put your your spotlight or focus on uh, the Alberta model. And do you think? Going forward, so let's say you provide coverage on Alberta and the model, and it costs less, it's more effective, and there's less and less people on the street. In other words, there's metrics that are just undeniable. At that point, you know, basically the data would be in front of people after a couple, three years of this model. Do you think then the policymakers could not ignore it, or do you think they'll just continue to follow? Because they've had this safe supply touted for so long and advocated for so long that they can't necessarily say that they were wrong. Like, do you think that that fundamentally could happen where they say, listen, we've done safe supply. It just hasn't had enough time to work. I think that there'll be a lot of politicians who have been touting this for a long time who will find it very difficult to back off of it because they have they're so invested. The activists at the party level, the ideologues will definitely not be able to back off of it because they've been they've been talking about this for, for 
for 20 years or more in some cases. Um, but I do think what will happen is the public will demand a change. I believe we're almost already there, to be completely honest. And I think that because when the public will demand a change, eventually a politician will will see that as a potential political advantage for them to, to, to stake out some ground on that issue. And then there'll be electoral consequences. So that's usually how I think democracy works. I mean, it's... Um, if uh, if you if ultimately if you change the mindset of the public or the public starts demanding action uh, the politicians in power will either have no choice but to to cave to that action or to to respond to that call or a different politician from a competing political party will view that as a wedge issue that they can take advantage of so i do think in the long term uh, the road that bc is going down is is not sustainable i do think there'll be a big fight i think it's it's also radiated out to the federal level. You see uh, Polyev talking a lot about this. You see Trudeau doing rallies, uh, highlighting and pushing for, for so-called safe supply. So I think that this is actually going to be a, a, a quite a big issue going forward. And um, it'll be interesting to see how it all, all plays out. Um, are you able to spend some time in Kelowna and, and be able to look at our you know, we have the same issue, not on the largest scale as Vancouver and Victoria do, but are you able to kind of tour around and, and see what what encampments exist here? Well, well, I, the short answer is I haven't yet. Um, if uh, I'm always able to potentially do things, but we haven't, uh, we haven't done anything in Kelowna. One thing I will say is, I mean, after Vancouver's dying, obviously it was seen by a lot of people in Vancouver and commented on, but probably, probably the most reoccurring comment I got was, wow, you should see, insert my city here, Prince George. The exact yeah. same thing is happening, yeah. especially in BC, uh, other provinces as well, but especially BC um, and smaller cities. And that's one thing that I've really come to, to know is, is these same policies that have ravaged Vancouver are ravaging many smaller cities as well. The one thing about Vancouver is, although it's worse than it's ever been, it's not a new problem. It, these, you know, the downtown east side was, you know, it was there 20 years ago. It's, it's bigger. It's more violent. It's, it's, it's more deranged. There's much more open drug use, but it was always there. Whereas, for example, the city that I'm from, Victoria, basically, this wasn't an issue at all. And now it's it's a huge issue. We have our own mini downtown east side. And then I hear from people, I mean, you mentioned Prince George, uh, here in Kelowna, uh, Nanaimo, a lot of people reaching mm -hmm. out. Smaller cities like Campbell River, um, in the Fraser Valley, places like Maple Ridge had a, had a huge issue. Penticton had a huge issue. And, you know, these are small cities. So this, is not, this is not an issue that I think you would expect, oh, everybody, big city is going to have a little bit of this. It's now happening in cities with like 30,000, 40,000 people. And this was not the this was not the case twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, ten years ago in some cases. So it's obviously gotten worse. And what I always say is, if you copy and paste the exact same policies, you shouldn't be surprised when you get the exact same results. Yeah, definition of insanity. Uh, the one part that I was really interested in is the safe supply and how a lot of users are actually using that to fund their fentanyl addiction. I found that to be a very interesting cause cause effect, which was. Okay, they get their safe supply. It do, it's not laced with fentanyl for obvious reasons. They go to different places where they can sell it, and obviously it's it's labeled as such, so people trust the supply. 
they're able to use that, they pay for that, and then the users go back, try to, to get their fentanyl fix. It, and, and when people hear that, like, have you seen the reaction when they hear of that, that chain, that process that, that obviously users are using right now to fund this addiction? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I've seen the react. There's recently a big story out of Nanaimo where somebody found all of this so-called safe supply that had been diverted and basically sold by the addicts and then to to their dealers or traded for fentanyl and then resold on the on the black market to people like high school kids or people attending college universities people that are at a earlier stage in kind of their 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 pathway to full-blown addiction and it's it's shocking it's probably it was the single most revealing aspect is this that I that I learned that came as kind of a an epiphany to me while producing Vancouver's Dying, and I'm already finding that again as we move into the sequel and doing some pre-production work is is that part of the story is so important and so not talked about, and it's 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 also it's I, I think there's always the story of of uh, of you know something being laced with fentanyl, and uh, you know this we're gonna we're gonna legalize it and there's going to be some cocaine manufacturing plant in in bc and it's going to say the vast majority of overdose deaths are coming from people so that the, the people are clear the vast vast majority of people who are overdosing on fentanyl who who pursued and bought and consumed fentanyl on purpose and are actively seeking the high from fentanyl so that's the kind of the first thing that people understand this is not like you accidentally um, are using fentanyl exactly it's actually it's, it's the it's, it's what they want essentially and if someone is addicted to fentanyl if you give them as they're doing in bc right now hydromorphone which is a basically like a tablet form of heroin which is um i don't know exactly like a hundred times more powerful than oxycontin just to put it in in perspective and put it in perspective um you know it's, it doesn't give you the same high as fentanyl and the reason why People don't understand this. Like, if you're an addict, you're addicted to fentanyl. You're addicted to that high. What are you going to do with this this hydromorphone? Well, it's a it's something that you can trade for the high that you want. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's safer, like you're not going to overdose on it as easily. Obviously, you can overdose on on hydromorphone, um, is irrelevant. I mean, you're you've been consu- you've been addicted to fentanyl, and you're on the street, knowing the risks of fentanyl. They're not. This isn't like a revelation to people, and they, and they don't care because that's what it means to be an addict. In fact, what uh, one individual just told me, which will be in the next documentary, is I asked her, how could you see people? She overdosed 20 times before getting clean. Uh, revived friends, they would all revive each other and see your friends OD. And I said, well, how do you see people overdose over and over again and then say, you know, please, sir, can I have some more, mm-hmm. basically, to these drugs? And she said when she saw people overdose, she wanted to know, what are those people having? Because that's the good stuff. That's the strong stuff. That's the, that's what you want. And as you can imagine, like you're just always chasing this high, and you can never it never really hits like it does the first time, and you get into the spiral, and then you become afraid of the withdrawal symptoms eventually. So it's um, all they every single one individual that I talked to said if they were given a recovering addict uh, at the time when they were addicted to fentanyl. They would have a resold it or traded it to a dealer to get more of the fentanyl that they wanted, or b perhaps supplement their fentanyl use and addiction use with just more opioids um, along the way. 
none of them said that it would have ever transitioned them off the drugs they were actually using. So it's um, it's a fool's game. It's I mean it's not evidence based. There's nowhere where this has worked. This is like a giant human experiment that's that's I mean killing hundreds thousands of people in the case of BC every year. And uh, and the other thing I have to point out because it's so insane to me. And the more again with Vancouver is dying and then producing the sequel that that all the conversations have have began on. The more you dig into it, the crazier it be, crazier it becomes. This is a crisis that was started in the United States uh, from these pain clinics, Oxycontin, doctors also in Canada that overprescribed opioids mm-hmm. and just said, you, you gotta, your back hurts, you're having a bad day, here's an opioid, here's an opioid, here's an opioid. That's how it started. Those opioids, what are they? They're, they're professionally, manu- pharmaceutically man- man- manufactured, a consistent composition and quality, you know what you're getting. And deemed by the manufacturers, the people that were making them, as being safe, and it literally caused the problem, and uh, that we, that we find ourselves in today, where there's in British Columbia two thousand people dying uh, every year from drug overdoses. It was literally all started from the government basically signing off on what they said was a was a easily accessible and quote unquote safe supply of opioids, and now we want to do the exact same thing to solve the problem that it started to create. Every single the three indigenous uh, women that I chatted with earlier this week said all of their addictions started by taking diverted, which means um, someone had like a false prescription or a doctor was just overprescribing or, or whatever, Percocets, which is like mm-hmm. uh, significantly, obviously less potent than, but it's, it's an opioid. And starting there and then chasing the high kind of up and up to, 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 um, um, various different opioids and drugs of uh, consistency. Um, I'm, for, I'm forgetting the one that they went to next. What's, what's the uh, morphine? And then from morphine to fentanyl and then carfentanil, which is even more potent. And then mixing that with crystal meth so that they wouldn't go through withdrawal. It's called like uh, speed balls, I think. And they, again, like much more dangerous, but the it's not a concern of... of, of uh, a, a, an addict doesn't want safer drugs. They want a better high is what they want. So if you give, so um, it's, uh, you're not solving the problem. As you and I sit here and we, we talk about these things and we see empirical evidence that perhaps safe supply is not the best path forward based on anecdotal evidence, but also empirically, we're, we're starting to see the cause effect of these policies. Where do you lay this at the feet of? Like, is this, is this municipal? Because obviously Stuart Kennedy was part of the uh, the documentary. But, you know, if you were to lay this at the feet of, of one particular, well, not one, but wh- whose fault is this? Well, there's individuals that are better explaining the history of how this movement came to be. I think there's, 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 two, there's two groups to keep in mind. Uh, one is throughout the 80s and 90s, you have the kind of so-called war on drugs which was presented as a binary option between basically treating drug users or drug, addict, drug addicts as criminals. Um, I guess this even came all the way from out of, out of the 60s versus kind of, um, you know, they should uh, treat it with compassion and, and everyone sh- should be, you know, be allowed to do their own thing. And um, that was, I mean, the, the side that was, kind of pro-incarceration uh, clearly lost that 
that debate in the public. And the bizarre thing is that, and then a whole bunch of time passed, I think, where we didn't have conservatives specifically didn't engage on this issue, which allowed those on the other side to basically run hog wild and implement all these, these crazy policies. And now if anyone opposes them, they accuse them of like the war on drugs failed. But it's a false binary because nobody, for example, in Alberta, in the Alberta model or Portugal, no one's advocating you throw drug addicts in jail. It's about getting people treatment and and to get people clean. But I think within that other side, um, there's just a there's still a perspective that um, you should basically be allowed to use drugs if you want to. Uh, irregardless of the societal consequences, the consequences to your own health, the consequences to your family health, uh, the consequences to your community, the, co- the consequences to public safety. Um, so I think there's still that kind of, there's a group that has that ideological disposition. There's also, that same group also has a tendency to blame the collective or society for everything as opposed to um, believing in individual agency and individual responsibility. Um, so they're less likely to believe in, in treatment and, and recovery, especially abstinence-based treatment and recovery. And then the third thing I would say is the concept of harm reduction, actually, the which is started with safe injection sites and which safe, quote-unquote safe supply is a natural evolution of, began in Vancouver and actually began began during the AIDS epidemic, uh, where there was a group of people that kind of that were pushing harm reduction policies as it pertained to AIDS, as opposed to abstinence based uh, policies. And then AIDS has kind of gone away because of advances in in treatment and things like that. And they just basically looked wanted to look to copy and paste that ideology onto a different issue because that's what they knew. And not, not only that's what they knew as activists, but there's doctors, a lot, lot of doctors who that's, you know, they're from the harm reduction school as it pertained to AIDS and they, and they brought it into, to, into drugs. But instead I think have created much, much more harm because the problem is, is that these issues are not, you know, they're, they're, they're not comparable. So when you, when you kind of lazily uh, extract, you know, one set of results from a particular experiment and try to apply it to a situation that's completely different. You run into all sorts of results and it seems to happen a lot again on the left. I mean, just as a, just as for whatever reason pops into my head, you see it, for example, with kind of the, the woke mob, the, with the tearing down of statues, with the, um, all these claims of, of systemic racism, things like that that originated out of the United States from a very specific historical set of circumstances out of pretty much nowhere back in 2015, 2016. And then because that ideological grouping of people are so monolithic, they just came to Canada and copy and pasted the exact same thing, went around tearing down the exact same statues, used the exact same talking points, even though it's a completely different country with a completely different set uh, of uh, different, different set of historical events and uh, historical roots and uh, kind of national story. And it's, it's uh, so I think it's, and, I, and then it also goes back to the media on all of these issues where, I mean, there's no, on, on this, the issue of, of, of opioids and safe supply, there's, there's no, invest, almost no investigative journalism that's, that's critical of it or, or asking difficult questions. It's just kind of announcing what the government is doing 
and usually kind of copy and pasting a couple of talking points from one of these nonprofits or something who are usually financially incentivized by that program. And, um, and then it's just kind of regurgitated out and, and thrown out to the public. So yeah, it's uh, the big difference with, with what's happening with homelessness and opioids. I think it's happening right in front of people's faces. So it's not really, it's not like people can, people can see that it's not working. It's not like you need to go study up on it. Like everyone driving to work in Vancouver, everyone walking to, uh, you know, walk downtown Vancouver and people are openly, you know, uh, using crystal meth and getting crystal meth smoke blown in your face or there's someone yelling at the wall or there's, Mm -hmm. there's, uh, for me, it's the tilt. Like when they have that tilt going on, and they've uh, they've clearly had some sort of episode, and they're they're tilted in a certain way that doesn't even look real. Like it, it just feels like a zombie apocalypse sometimes when I go down there. The other question I have is, if you were ever to ask the office, uh, provincial health authority, um, do you think they'd ever give you an interview with uh, Doctor Henry? Oh, definitely not. That's uh, that's an easy. Uh, I know. Uh, I mean, government. Uh, yeah, government especially, especially not. Government, big corporations normally will almost always be no. Um, you got to find people that, uh, even university professors, it depends if they have tenure. People are very, uh, th- th- now this is, a, this is also another issue surrounding council culture as well, and people being very uh, cautious to put, their, to put their face out there and to stick their head up on an issue. And there's also, you got to remember too, if it's the case of doctors or um, university professors, like this just happened from Vancouver's dying, you know, they're also very dependent on government funding. And governments in this country have become very used to funding their political allies and creating, um, we see that in Vancouver where there's all these quote-unquote non-profits. Usually the people running them are getting paid, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And all their contracts are from the government to, like, push their ideological agenda, essentially. And um, it's it's I actually think it's quite dis- it's a disgusting use of taxpayer money. And it's it's obviously not helping people. So it's um, so yeah, people I think are are but but government specifically is just uh, not going to comment on on things for for the most part. Uh, one last point I want to talk about, and and whatever issue, and I've I've kind of talked to my kids about this, which is any issue. I said I really need you to understand the money trail. Because if somebody is profiting off of an issue, you need to be aware of that. And I'm just trying to teach my kids, like, not not necessarily be jaded, but, but obviously be aware of where the money is. And in the safe supply world, who is getting rich off of this, this supply? Because it's, it's huge, and it seems to be getting bigger and bigger. We're opening more manufacturing. We're, we're creating more. It, who, is, who is fundamentally making more money off of this? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, I haven't gone through the financials. There's lots of people making lots of money. I mean, I call it the poverty industrial complex. Uh, safe supply is just starting. Uh, there's the former chief medical officer whose name is going to elude me at the second, but directly, I mean, you can Google it. It's the person directly before Dr. Bonnie Henry. Dr. Bonnie Henry is actually their protege. He left government as being the senior med- uh, health officer for years, um, I think it's Carrie Pendle or something like that. And um, he's now involved on the board of directors and I believe some ownership stake in a basically a medical grade heroin manufacturing company. 
And um, at the same time, you know, he's very vocal in support of safe supply. And uh, there's so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that's a, re- that's a respectable on. drug dealer. That's, that's a, a very respectable drug dealer. drug dealer if he sits on a board. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's uh, the whole. I mean, the whole thing is. I mean, we got people in jail, obviously, for for obvious reasons for for trafficking drugs, and the government is but the the government of British Columbia is about to to uh, enter the game. And I mean, the other thing on the opioid epidemic, I have to say, which is just incredible, is British Columbia goes around. David Eby prances around talking about how he's going to sue Purdue or, you know, for the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, maybe in the billions of dollars for all the deaths they've caused uh, with Oxycontin and 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 putting out there uh, this this easily accessible opioid that led to a lot of people get getting addicted and eventually dying. And how dare they? And they also uh, said that it was safe. He is literally doing the exact same thing as the Premier of British Columbia. He's literally pushing a supply of opioids that was manufactured and approved by the government, is literally calling them safe supply, even though they are incredibly addictive, dangerous, you can overdose on them, and will lead to hundreds and thousands of deaths. So it's it's um, the government is basically becoming Purdue, except the drugs that they're pushing, the opioids that they're pushing, are many, many times more powerful than what oxycotton was so it's it's to me like it's it's uh once i kind of had that revelation that this was it, it was just so they're literally the ndp the government here in bc openly they're they're all opposed to purdue and what happened and then that their proposal to solve the problem is for the government to basically take over what purdue was doing and roll out oxycotton you know times times 50 times 100 so it um, reeks of hypocrisy. Yeah, it speaks of either, it's some kind of hypocrisy or, or willful blindness or um, uh, just just uh, just incompetence. But um, you know, I think incompetence in a lot of cases it would be generous uh, for some of these individuals. <laughs> would you put uh, Adrian Dix in that same category? I mean, I don't know. Like the obviously, I know who they are, but I, I don't know any of these people individually. Uh, I do try to. Um, assume the best motivations for for some of these people are these people um once you're ideologically disposed to to a certain viewpoint and you've invested 20 years of your life pursuing something it is very difficult i think for any human being to to have the the personal kind of wherewithal to say i was wrong for the past 20 years everything i was doing has been a waste of time um i've now seen the light it's very it's very difficult to get people to to intellectually make that turn. So um, I, I don't know who in the in the NDP, how, how it breaks down. I mean, I don't think, for example, John Horgan, uh, I don't think he personally believed in a lot of this stuff. Um, you, you saw him caught even with, uh, with uh, uh, when he said, you know, drug addiction starts with a bad choice, and then he got lambasted, and then he was forced to apologize. Um, so I don't think he buys into it. So some people just kind of go along with, where they think the political winds are blowing, uh, other people I think really believe it um, and buy into the ideology, and I'm not sure who's who necessarily. Uh. And and you know I I would count myself as someone who I respected John Horgan, I respected the Jack Laytons of the world because they seem to be a more moderate NDP and probably closer to the middle than a lot of them are, but. Uh, you know, I, I still don't really have a sense of uh, David Eby, and, and, and nor will I until I'm sure an election comes up. But it seems like 
he would be on, because wasn't he the, the BC housing minister? Uh, was the, I think it was the attorney general. Yeah, would, Attorney yeah. General, but he also had some overlap with, with BC yeah. Housing. So, it, you know, I think the, the report card is still left to be decided on on his leadership and, and his policies. But I would think it would follow the same narrative that was created earlier with, with Horgan. Yeah, I don't have a great sense on EB. I mean, I think he's definitely much more left-wing than Horgan. But I think he's also, um, which I think in some ways makes him quite a bit more dangerous. But he's, all, he's not... Um, he he knows that you can't implement any of your policies if you don't win elections. So I think, uh, like any good politician, his number one focus and goal is to win elections. And to that extent, he'll be confined by by public opinion to a degree. Uh, like I like for example, we all saw his kind of uh, faux uh, outrage when it was revealed that there was a company that got approval from Health Canada to, to manufacture cocaine. I mean, he's the one that asked for decriminalization. Uh, and the reason you ask for decriminalization is to pave the way for safe supply and for the manufacturing of drugs because no one was being thrown in jail to begin with. So that's that's the only reason you do it because if it's not decriminalized, you can't get a license to, to produce it. So, I mean, so yeah, but, but he could see the potential public backlash coming so we'll see. And, then, you know, you're confined by public opinion. You're confined by the base. But the base of the, of the NDP party is, is very big on this and, push, and pushing it. So, so we'll, see. we'll see how this goes. But I imagine they're going to start um, pushing much more slowly than they might have otherwise because there's been some backlash. And uh, uh, the other thing is the, the BC Liberal slash United Party, which is the the opposition party, main opposition party in the legislature, they've also been all over the place on this. But they've uh, they've all they've now starting to change their position because they think they see public opinion and they see a political advantage. So, you know, I always say I don't uh, I don't uh, you know I don't think people should place too much faith or inspiration in, in the vast majority of politicians because most of them are just looking to get elected and seek out political advantage, which I also which I which I recognize. But I think it also means that, you know, conversations around media and documentaries and stuff become, become more important because if you can switch, change public opinion, uh, usually the politicians will invariably end up following as well. I got to say, this has been a, a lot of fun. And uh, Aaron, I, I hope you continue to get uh, funded to, to expose these stories because, I, again, we can't have enough of your ilk uh, going out there and helping share the message share the story and, and really creating more perspectives around the table. So I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here and uh, it's always good to be in Kelowna and uh, hopefully uh, next time I'm out here, it's uh, the summer and nice and warm and I can uh, hit the lake. Is there a place where people can crowdsource or, or help, uh, help with your projects? Well, AaronGunn.ca is kind of the home for everything. Uh, again, depending on if you're, if you're, uh, by the time this podcast com- comes out, you should be able to go to AaronGunn.ca slash politics explained. And uh, that's where you'll see different places where you can become a supporter or a, a producer of the series and all sorts of different options there and some cool benefits as well. So yeah, that's, uh, that's where you can help bring some of these, uh, these episodes uh, to life. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me.